over time, things work themselves out. And when we spend too much time worrying about the way a language should be, it changes in exactly that way, even faster, because then it makes it more exciting and interesting to people that push language forward, which is young people. And now. (laughs) I'm the captain now. (laughs) Coming to you from the K2 studios in San Diego, California. This sounds great. You sound amazing. I always sound amazing. It's the world famous. Everybody sit off like BFS. Chris and Christine Show. Hey, what's happening, everybody? How are you doing today? Thank you so much for listening, and I am Chris. And I'm Christine, and welcome to episode 124 of the Chris and Christine Show. You know what I gotta say is fantastic. And you know what's even more fantastic? What's that, baby doll? Is today, in the studio, we have Clover, the podcasting puppy. Yeah, our virtual, actual, real guest in the room with us. Hey, Clover, say hello. Huh? Okay, she's busy licking, <laughs> she's licking your licking feet. She's licking my feet right now. Right now. <laughs> oh, she's such a cutie. I have just loved spending so much time with her over the weekend, and the boys loved snuggling up with her, and she's super curious right now. She's like, what is this that I'm getting to do? And she's just like laying on my feet. It's so cute. I know. She is looking around, though, thinking that she can escape, but then she realizes- <laughs> The doors and, are closed. Right. She can't run around like a wild Indian like she usually is. So, But uh, the, here it is, Monday. We are recording this a little later into the weekend like, than we usually do. And one of the reasons why is because we had a full house of children. We sure did. It was such a fun weekend, and we enjoyed every minute of it. They were wild and crazy. But well-behaved for the most part. You notice how, like, when Ezekiel is down here and Jacob Mason are also over here, the three of them are like the three amigos. They really are. They just want to hang out and do things together. Like, uh, was it Saturday or Sunday when they walked all three of them down to the taco shop? It was Sunday. Yeah, they woke up on Sunday morning. They'd asked on Saturday night if they could wake up and go for a run in the morning. And Wait, a, like a jog run? Yeah, they went for a run and then they came back after their run and they even took Clover on their run with them. And after they came back from their run, they asked if they could go walk down to the Mexican restaurant on the corner and have breakfast together. And so I gave them, I have this little prepaid debit card. It has like 50 bucks on it. And I, so I was like, sure, go ahead. And we have location services on all three of them. So it made it super easy. to All through them. their iPhones. Yeah. The, the tracking plan they got on the iPhone. Right. Yeah. So I was able to see that they were exactly where they were supposed to be and Oh, they felt so independent. It was so fun. Until you noticed, coming back, the kid, all three kids got to the front door here because you saw... That was after the run. They no, was It was that, after the run before Mexican food. When they lost the phone? When Mason lost his phone. It wasn't right. they. It was just Mason. Because you see the three dots and then you see two dots coming up and you see the third dot sitting there in the middle of the road. And like, I was like, uh, I texted Ezekiel. I was like, don't leave Mason behind. And he came back. He's like, what are you talking about? And um, I said, Mason, where's your phone? And he's like, oh, I said, you lost your phone. And so fortunately, again, I had by the way, too. <laughs> fortunately, I had the tracking on it. So he was and it was charged, and find it. charged yeah. this time, too, because last time remember he lost it. It wasn't charged at all. And it died. Yeah, <laughs> definitely track it. But he found the phone. So that was great. And all three kids were super excited. So on Saturday for a cool, fun day, I had this great idea because uh, so two weeks ago, I took Jacob and Mason up to the outlets. They have a outdoor skating rink. You know, roller skating, roller blading, that kind of thing. I said, yep. why not have Ezekiel, since he's here in town, why not have all three kids, we all go up there and do some roller skating. Mm-hmm. But we got there a little early. The rink didn't open till four. We got there like, what, two or three? Yeah, we got there right at two. 
So we decided to play in an arcade for the kids. And as we're walking around the place, we did some shopping. We didn't decide. Here's what the real story was. You saw the roller skating wasn't open and we found out that it wasn't open until four. And Ezekiel ran ahead and he was like, he saw this game zone and he's like, hey, mom, can we go in here? We went in and they had a PlayStation and you could purchase time by the hour. And so we could get an hour for the boys to play. And then there was this virtual reality course. It was like different games that they could choose from. And it was like different prices for like 15, 20 or 40 minutes. And then I had a couple of dollars in my wallet. So the boys ended up keeping themselves occupied in there for like almost two hours all the way up until roller skating started. Right. It's like the future of arcade games now. It's this whole like a VR like room kind of a thing. And plus they had other games too. They had pool tables and maybe they had like a uh, like an Xbox or PlayStation like thing kind of set up to a couple of big screens where you just give you a controller. You rent time. Is yeah, that's they- what I was just saying that we rented time for them on the PlayStation. So after that was up, you and I went over to the coach store, did some shopping. Just you and me, baby doll. Yeah. What did you buy at the coach store? Well, I was looking at purses or backpacks. I couldn't figure out which one I wanted. If one of the bling or the other bling, you know, so. What are you acting <laughs> You did not. No, I was looking around and I was looking at purses, but I couldn't find anything that I desperately needed to add to my little collection because I typically don't buy coach full price. I go for the discounted coach at the coach outlets, which, you know, it's end of the season or whatever, but I like to have coach purses. They last for a really long time and I've never had a problem with them. And so um, the one time that I did have a problem, they had me ship it back and they gave me like a $400 credit to get Whoa, a new purse. Yeah. No way. But I was looking at sunglasses and just kind of looking around. But then you were like, what did you ask me? I was asking you, should I upgrade my wallet? I showed you my old wallet I had. I think I think for like 25 years and it looks like I ran over my truck. It, it, was it pretty, probably did. It was so worn out, worn over. And it was starting to like become more like a round. I don't know what it is. Like the corner started like bulging up together. So it wasn't as flat like a normal wallet should be. Anyways, so I was like, I should upgrade wallets. They had wallets there. I mean, they're so expensive for wallets. My goodness. But yet you still bought one. I did, didn't I? I well, you know what? They, they were like 60% off, which that sounds like a good deal. But when the wallet's almost $200 to begin with, like my goodness. <laughs> Wow, for a wallet. And then I was like, are you sure? Because it doesn't have all the inserts that your other one has. And you were like, it's fine. It's fine. It's totally fine. It's a coach wallet for goodness sake. Yeah. And then you started putting everything into it while we went back. It wouldn't fit. Yeah. When we went back and sat (laughs) with the boys at the um, arcade. And you're like, how am I going to get this credit card out? This doesn't even fit. And I was like, well, first of all. I still struggle with it every day. Yeah. First of all, you shouldn't have 10 credit cards. Second of all, you don't need to have so much stuff in your wallet. Well, you know, back in the old days, people had like their pictures in their wallet. Like I had a picture flap. We'd pull the pictures and stuff. Oh, the good old days. You should still have a picture at least of me. I have my phone. Everybody has their phone now. You don't need to do that. Yes, you do. Because what happens if like somebody stole your phone and they were trying to find out who your wife was? Baby, I would just use memory. I say, look, you see that but beautiful, what if you lost beautiful your... girl right there? That's that's my wife. But what if you lost your memory? You were like, that is amnesia. that is very real, realistic possibility. <laughs> yes, I think about it. Yeah, yeah it definitely is because you're losing more of it every day. Well, the kids had fun doing that stuff after we did the coach thing. We were walking around the big mall. They they happen to have a bowling alley. Okay, but yet again, right there. But yet again, at the place. This wasn't your idea. It wouldn't. Uh, who said it was? I know, Obviously but we wait. saw one. So we went in to do skating, and the boys saw the sign for the bowling alley, and they were like, "Can we do bowling?" And I felt bad because you had had this idea that you wanted to take the kids skating, 
But they were all into the idea of bowling. And I didn't know that Mason and Jacob had never bowled before. Zeke loves bowling. He's really good at it. I think he's really good at it. And so we went hunting around and then um, there was like an hour wait. We had to get on the waiting list for the bowling alley. So we took the kids to another arcade. Yeah, there's I know. two arcades <laughs> in this place. Well, one, one's a virtual reality thing and the other one's more of a standard arcade with ticket prizes. It was right. like the old Chunky Cheese back in the day. Chunky Cheese? That's what I said. Chunky. Chunky. Why do I always get that wrong? Chunky Cheese? <laughs> Nobody wants to eat at Chunky Cheese. <laughs> you end up being Chunky at Chunky Cheese. That's what, that, that's what it's called, right? Nobody wants to eat at Chunky Cheese. <laughs> well, oh my well, gosh you're too much well anyways we, we had the kids play there and then after our, that was done and our bowling was ready to go i decided to jump in the game too so it was myself jacob mason and ezekiel all four of us had a lane where all four of us were going to town playing some bowling yeah and i got to watch and i took some cute video and i already posted it on my social media um but i really loved watching the boys get into it I know that it was, you know, it was a learning experience for Jacob and Mason. They were excited and then upset and then excited. Upset. But (laughs) one of the things that I loved seeing was how Ezekiel was acting, uh, being a great big brother and trying to support them and teach Mason and Jacob different skills. And I even remember at one time you were walking up to help him and he's like, I've got this. I got this. And I really loved seeing that. Oh, he said that or I said that? No, he said that. He's like, I got this. He's like, I got this. And he was working with Mason and he was just being so sweet and kind. And he's such a good big brother. I really love seeing him being a big brother. He was. He even got that little helper cheater thing out for They had this weird cheater thing. Back in my day, the cheater thing they used to have. It's not a cheater thing. Well, it was the bumper if they put in the gutter so that the ball wouldn't go in the gutter. It just got to bounce, I guess, and go down, down the middle. Now they have this thing. I've never seen this before. It looks like a, a slide for like, like a, a dragon. It's shaped like a dragon. Right. But it looks like a slide, like a kindergarten slide maybe mm-hmm. for, play, you know, for like maybe a baby or something. But it's for bowling balls. Right. You roll the bowling ball down it and it directs it directly down towards the uh, pins at the very end of the lane. Instead of having to throw the ball, you just like drop it down the little slide and yeah. it goes down the end. He did, did that a couple times, but he really was kind of getting frustrated. He was trying to throw the ball himself. Both kids were. In fact, all of the kids, including myself, except for Mason, pulled a strike. Yes. Yeah, Jacob pulled a strike, and he was on cloud nine when he hit that strike. You see how excited he was? Oh, yeah, definitely. And so was Zeke. And I was just cracking up. It was so fun to just sit back and watch the kids dancing. First of all, they had music that they loved, which is like like upbeat, kind of pop, uh, hip-hop, r Modern type stuff, rap. Yeah. yeah. And so the kids were like dancing, and they had cool lights in there. And then, yeah, they were just having a great time. It was really fun. And then we went out to pizza. Oh, that's a it – was, you told me. I remember this. Uh, thank you for this fantastic day. Remember how fantastic it was? All yeah. Along? I said thank you for thinking up the idea of going out there. Even though we decided not to do the skating, you were flexible and not like making a scene or anything out of not doing the – like the skating and all of that kind of stuff, but making it really about the kids and having a good day. And I just loved it. Oh, that was our weekend. And yesterday was Sunday. And Sunday, what did we do Sunday? Well, we were just talking about it. The kids went for a run. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah. I took a nap because I was super tired after, you know, naps the last are good. Weeks. Yeah, they are good. Um, but yeah, we just did some stuff around the house and then Zeke had to head home. He'll be back in a week. And um, yeah, I don't think that we did much else. I mean, we just had. It's like a low-key day. I think also the weather was very like gloomy and kind of drizzly, I remember. Yeah, it totally was. But this week, it's going to be flip the script. It's going to be super hot. 
Yeah, it's going Sunny. from like, I don't know, 63 today to 95 on Friday. It's crazy. Oh, my goodness. A lot of people in Phoenix are laughing like, 95. We'd get that yeah. in the morning. <laughs> you know, no big deal. But, uh, but also, uh, I was going to say that. Um, what else did you do yesterday? You were doing some stuff on the computer, weren't you? Yes. As a matter of fact, I was. If you remember, was it last episode, you said, wouldn't it be super cool if there was a way that our listeners can contact us directly? I think you said that, but yes, I think it would be really cool. Well, guess what? Your answer is is your wish is my command. That's okay, you sound like an infomercial man right now. That's how I get what it to it. What do I get for the low, low price of twenty nine ninety five, sir? For five million payments of twenty nine ninety five. No, so what we did design is I think you know what? There's got to be a way for people to actually call in and leave messages for us to play on the podcast and listen and things like that. Okay, and they're is oh cool tell me it's called speak pipe and i just added it we just got an account signed up for the chris and christine show if you go over to our website right now chris and christine show.com on the top of the website in fact i redesigned the website but the coolest thing i put on the website if you click on the top banner you'll have choices you'll have like the main profile about us profile then you have a voicemail page. Ooh, so like you, old school voicemail? Well, it works on a computer or a smartphone. Anywhere you can do things in a browser. So if you have a like, a like an iPhone or even a computer or a tablet or anything like that, you can do this on. Fun. All you do is click on it. It says access microphone. You leave your recording and it saves it directly to us. And we can save it and we can play it on the podcast because it saves it as MP3. Oh, that's so boom, fun. Boom. Easy to go. Good to go. Uh, up to, I think it's 90 seconds per recording. So, Dad, don't get all rambling on your you know, recordings because sometimes you like to do that, you know. So, <laughs> but um, He's not the only one that I know that rambles, but go ahead. Oh, really? <laughs> so, you can... Not s- pointing fingers. <laughs> so, please head over to our website and click on the voicemail feature if you want to save, send an audio recording directly to us. And I'll put a link to this in the show notes below. So, don't you even worry about it. So, to be able to do that... Did you like have to create the platform or is it somebody else that created it and you had to figure out how to get it on our website? I think the latter half. This this platform has existed for many, many years. I always told the idea of maybe putting like a some kind of voice feedback feature. I think from the early, early days of our podcast, like episode 10 or so, I was thinking about Mm -hmm. how do you figure this out? And I didn't realize there was a service available that it's designed for podcasting, okay. already built in, called SpeakPipe. I'm sure there's other ones like it, but it's the one I came across. Okay. And it had a free platform. You know me, I'll do anything for free. Yeah. You know, so, uh, which allows you to have uh, up to 30 messages. So don't blow us up now. We only got 30, <laughs> we'll only have 30 messages a month at 90 seconds a message. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to seeing what people have to say to us. And who knows, if you get a voicemail and it's pretty fantastic, we might just play it on the show, right? Absolutely. Super easy to do. So please, please give us a call. You know, <laughs> you can talk about it more if you want. <laughs> tell, tell, tell Christine how beautiful she is. Oh, uh, but not in a creepy way. Yeah, uh, definitely. But thank you for putting all of that effort in. I know that you were spending a lot of time trying to figure that out. And then I love love the redesign that you did to our website. I saw that you did something different with adding Podtastic Audio too, right? Yeah, Podtastic Audio was already on a, on its own little page on the website, but it was kind of like a it looked kind of ugly. It was kind of like a Tetris design, kind of like this oh, here, yeah. this there kind of a thing. I'm thinking like, what? I already have the website for Podcastic Audio on Podpage. 
why don't I just link it together and how to figure out how to do that? That took me forever. I'm not a big mm-hmm. computer nerd. I don't know this stuff. But, but you're teaching yourself, I which know. is so great. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. I designed – so there is a link for Podtastic Audio on the webpage. You click on that and it redirects you directly to – my site. Yeah, it looks really good. So it's a very seamless design. So it's looks very clean, um, makes it very user-friendly. That's the thing, too. When you design these these things, whether it's a program, an iPhone, anything you're designing, you want the user to be able to like not think too much and just mm-hmm. do it and use it. Absolutely. Well, thank you for doing that. You know, I wish that I could say that my start of the week was as successful as yours, but I would like to think that I had a complete and utter failure today on Monday. <gasps> no, what is is it because of Mondays? Just got a case of the Mondays. I have a case of the Mondays for sure, but I had got I did the Instacart order for our groceries and got everything planned out for our meal for tonight. I did that yesterday and got these great little pork sausage meatballs that I was gonna cook and yummy a tomato sauce and we were gonna have pasta tonight. But I knew it was a super busy day, so. We had an interview tonight that we had to record at 5.30. So I have done this a million times, but I put the stove on low and I put the uh, marinara sauce in there and I put the meatballs in there so that they would be simmering on low so that by the time that we got done with the interview an hour later, it would be time to boil pasta to go with it. Well, while we were interview while we were doing that interview, um, and it'll be an interview that we air at a later date. I kept hearing Clover crying from the other room. And I was like, why is she crying? It's because she hears my voice. She normally doesn't cry like that. So finally, I was like, man, it feels like it's getting warm in the house. And I'm like, is there a fire? No. Like, I smell something, though. Well, sure enough, I go out to the kitchen and I see smoke all over the place. (gasps) No way. And my, my pasta sauce had completely burned the meatballs were completely ruined i had no backup plan for dinner i only had 20 minutes before i had to go to my next zoom meeting for my business and i was just like i i don't think i've ever i mean i remember one time when i cooked for my first husband and i put too much salt in the dinner and he was like oh that's not so great and i remember one time cooking for you and it was almost the identical dish that I made for Jeff like a long time no, ago. Wait, no, no, it was not. It was, yeah. the original, it was original. You said you never yeah. cooked it before. It was a brand new dish. Yeah, but I put too much salt in that one because I had to create my own seasonings for that one. And I hate so, your own seasonings. Mrs. Yeah. Dash wasn't available? Yeah, well, I had to, yeah, no, it wasn't. And so this, that, this is the first time that I've burned a meal, like full out burned a well, meal. Well, to your credit, you weren't watching it. You had you had it on a higher setting than normal. No, I didn't. I t- I only put it on four, which is pretty low. But on this, see, I'm still getting used to cooking on gas. I never had gas ovens growing up. I always had electric. Really? Yeah. And so I think that they're less variable. Like it's a pretty steady, even. They say temperature. gas. Is, they say gas is better to cook with. I heard. Yeah, it just gets hot faster, and so. <sighs> I burned the pasta or burned the meatballs, and so. Thank you for Chris to the rescue, went down to the Italian place down the street from us, which is close. And he was like, I'll get you taco shop. I'm like, I don't want taco shop again. But um, thank you. <laughs> yeah, for here in San Diego, us. taco shop every corner. Yeah. Thank you for feeding us. And, you know, it's just it's been a lot after a really long work day of like trying to figure out meals and all of that kind of stuff. And and one of the other things that's hard is like putting my thoughts together for a podcast at the end of the day. Do you ever realize like sometimes it's hard to think of what to say? 
It is. That's why some people, actually most people, they write down scripts and have like a show notes and stuff. Hey, where are your show notes at, by the way? I don't have any. Oh, I don't have any either. <laughs> there we go. That's how we do it. Wow. <laughs> well, this week's podcast guest is going to talk to us all about speech and communication. She has some fantastic tips and she, she had some fun with us and we're going to be back with her right after this. Hey, thank you so much for being a loyal listener of the Chris and Christine show. And as that you are a loyal listener, we have a very fun opportunity for you to get involved with the show. Ooh, tell me more. If you like to get exclusive content you can't get anywhere else and to receive free merchandise shipped to you every single month. Ooh, I love that. Then head over to patreon.com slash the Chris and Christine show. That is patreon.com slash the Chris and Christine show. And welcome back, everybody. Today, we have another fantastic guest on the show. She is a linguist, professor, author, and speaker. Welcome to the show, Dr. Valerie Friedland. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you today. Hey, Valerie. Well, thanks for showing up today. How was your flight? <laughs> it was great. I always have good flights, <laughs> especially when I never leave my house. Uh, well, we were going to bring you down here on our private jet, but you know, it just was going to be rainy and we thought maybe it wasn't the best day for you to actually fly to San Diego. So thanks for joining us remotely today. Sure. Happy to be here. And speaking of that, where in the world are you joining us from today? I am joining you from balmy Reno, Nevada, where actually it's been quite beautiful, but today it's rainy and, and breezy and cold. So not Reno. getting my skis on today. Now, is this snow in Reno? It, we, it does, actually, because we're right by Tahoe. We're 20 oh. minutes from Tahoe. So we are actually much closer to San Francisco, Tahoe than Vegas, which is often what people think of when they think of Nevada. But right. no, we're six, six miles from the um, California state line, and I can ski in 20 minutes from my house. The only thing I remember of Reno is that show Reno 911. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think that's what a lot of people remember about Reno. <laughs> is that like a like a cops kind of show? Like Bad it, Boys, it, Bad it Boys? It was, but it was a do? comedy. And the first oh. time I saw the show, I thought it was real. I was like, <laughs> what is going on here? Because it's filmed like uh, the documentary style, like mm -hmm. The Office. But it's uh, like a cop thing. Oh, well, my only time that I recall as an adult ever visiting Reno was kind of by accident. I was in Tahoe with uh, professional learning for a bunch of my teachers. And I was looking for, I think, to get gas in my rental car. And I ended up in Nevada, in Reno, at some convenience store. And I remember being so excited that there was a slot machine right there. And so I like sat <laughs> down right next to the Doritos and was like, I'm going to play my money. I didn't, I didn't win, but it was a fun memory. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so funny because with the, I've, I came here actually because I'm a professor at University of Nevada and I flew in here for my job interview, which is usually with academic jobs over the course of a few days. I had never been to Nevada except for one brief moment in Las Vegas years before. And I fly in and I walk out in the airport and there are slot machines everywhere. And I thought, <laughs> hell no, this is not for me. But, but then I saw the city and it's actually quite beautiful. And the campus is gorgeous and my colleagues are fabulous and I like to ski and hike. So it turned out not to be such a bad place, but it took me a while to stop seeing the slot machines in the grocery store. 
Oh, well, yeah. I, I didn't even know there were slot machines in a oh, they're, grocery they're, they're store. They're horrible. They're the old school, old school ones, right? Oh, those are my favorite. The ones that you actually like, pull a lever down on. Uh, I think they're like old school, like... Uh, Wear gloves when you touch them kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> not just that. They're like the old school, like video poker. Oh. Like the old, old ones. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah, I can't tell you what they are because I've never actually played them, but I I used to see them every time I walked in the grocery store. Now I've just gotten so used to them, I don't even notice that they're there, and I couldn't tell you where they are in any store I go into, although they are always there somewhere. Well, is Reno a large city? I Like I said, I've only ever gone to the outskirts that I can recall, but is it a metropolitan area or more rural? It is. It's actually a metropolitan area. I think it's, you know, with Reno and then the surrounding areas, there's some sort of suburban communities around it. I think it's about 300, 400,000 people. It's quite large. We have a Philharmonic, a Museum of Art, lots of restaurants, a river walk, um, all sorts of fun stuff, a big festival, uh, uh, art and culture festival in the summer. So it's actually quite urban. Wow, it's fantastic. Now, being that it is in Nevada, do you guys have like the big casinos like they would have in vegas or kind of like smaller things uh they they're much more old school style casinos but yes uh those are all downtown i mean there's a few i think scattered in other areas but we do have a downtown area that has a lot of larger casinos like harrah's and um circus circus we have a lot of the same casinos as in, you find in vegas but they're kind of older and more run down typically <laughs> yeah. oh. now you mentioned being brought to nevada for work but where were you from before you moved to the west coast well that's a good question especially with my specialty do you have any ideas of where i might be from from my voice at all i am going to take a guess of maryland Okay, Maryland. Interesting. I'm, I'm gonna say. Yeah. I'm gonna say. My turn. My turn. I'm gonna say. Um, uh, Ohio. I <laughs> think <laughs> my in-laws will be very happy to hear that, since my husband's from Ohio. But, but um, no, actually, both of you good guesses uh, that I wasn't from the West. But maybe if I say something like, "Hi, y'all. How you doing?" That'll give you a hint. Oh, Texas. I am from Memphis, Tennessee. Oh, what? I would have never guessed. I know. Most people can't. And um, that is probably what made me so interested in linguistics as a kid is I would grew up in a place where dialect is so salient and such a part of people's identity. But I didn't have that that accent or that identity. And um, it was something that really impressed on me how people make big decisions and choices in life based on the way people sound. My parents are actually both native French speakers, and that is probably why I grew up in Memphis but don't have an accent oh. because my immediate peer group um, and my parents' peer group did not come from the South um, because we were sort of outsiders, uh, as a lot of non-Southerners are when they move there. But um, it was something that really piqued my interest in understanding dialects. And also that what the modern South sounds like is not at all what we have in our imagination about what Southerners tend to sound like, especially oh, really? in Really? Yeah. Okay, okay. Okay, I have to tell you this story. Since you'd already started talking about being a linguist, Chris was telling me... <laughs> What was, was I telling okay. you? So he uh -oh. used to do college radio when he was younger. He's going to die laughing. I don't know if I can get this out right now, but he told me that he used to try on fake accents when he was on radio. And what were your specialties, Chris? Oh, I don't. I put on the spot here. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I was trying to put on kind of this like almost, 
I would call it a cross between like uh, Australian and English, maybe a South uh, African, maybe kind of <laughs> kind of spin can on. We, it. Can you like take it for a spin right now? I don't. Or am know. I putting you on the spot? Well, too I used much. to say well, I'm from San Diego. <laughs> we could have like stretched the O out when I would say, would say that. I don't know, but it was, that was so many years ago. I think accents are so fascinating. So, in listening to us, Valerie, do you think that either of us have a very distinctive accent, or do you want to take a stab at where you believe that both of us are from? <laughs> yeah. See, I like to call these stupid linguist tricks. All right. Well, I'm going to have you all say some stuff because I've got a a few things. Now, do you have a piece of paper um, in front of you with a pen y- or pencil? Yes, I I have paper. Chris, can you grab us a pen? Uh, are we going to do each going to need to do this or one at a time? Yes. Okay. You can do that. Um, so I'm going to give you some words, but I'm going to spell them out because I don't want to influence how you say them by the way I say them. And so I will see, um, if I can kind of narrow it down a little bit based on some of your vowels. Okay. Uh, So I'm going to spell the word and then you'll write them, write all three of these words down and then I'll have you pronounce them. Okay. I'm going to write them. I'm going to write them and then I'll hand the paper to Chris afterwards. So, okay. Okay. I'm ready. Perfect. All right, you ready? C-A-T. Okay. And then C-O-T. Okay. And then C-A-U-G-H-T. Okay. So I have these three words in front of me. Chris, do you want to take a stab at it first? Okay, so you want to read these to you? Yes. Okay, got cat, caught, and caught. Okay. All right. Say them one more time. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's get all professional here. You got cat, caught, and caught. Oh, okay. Interesting. All right. So you do not have the low back vowel merger unless you were doing some performative separation there. Maybe. So I, don't I, know. Would, <laughs> I would guess, based on how you said those vowels, um, I would guess that you were not from the West originally. Oh, yeah? Because... Because you have a fairly raised at and cat, and you do not have the low back vowel merger. But before I tell you more about that, let me listen to Christine. Okay. okay. Cat, cot, cot. All right. So you sound very Western. <laughs> I win. <laughs> Would you because win? you have the cot, cot merger in the back. So did you hear how you said those last two words? Say them again. Uh, cot, cot. Uh-huh. And then have Chris say them. Caught, caught. Oh, see, now there you, okay. Now, you actually said them identically that way, but you had differentiated them when you pronounced them very carefully, which is not unusual when you're paying a lot of attention to different spellings. Right. So say, say those two in your natural voice, Chris, just like how you normally say them. Uh, caught, a, I caught, caught. No, okay, okay. So, just say say it quickly because he's like he's trying to hyper focus to like get the right answer. Yes, just, yes. Okay. Just talk it like you're talking to caught, me. Caught, caught. Okay, so then see you misled me. You actually have the low back vowel merger, so I'm shifting my uh, assessment that you are probably a Western speaker as well because it is primarily Western speakers that have the low back vowel merger, which both of you exhibited when you said caught and caught the same way. And what is a low back? Vowel, who, what, who, what is it? <laughs> Hoopla. What is that? Yeah. Then, what does well, it mean? Luckily, it's not a virus. It's not contagious. Thank you. Well, I mean, actually, it might be a little contagious, but it's not a bad thing. So, normally, those words like C O T and C A U G H T, which a lot of people say cotton quat, or oh. say them cot cot, 
Or think about here. Let me give you another example. C-O-L-L-A-R. Caller. Versus C-A-L-L-E-R. Caller and caller. Yes. Do you say those differently? Okay. My collar on my neck and then the collar. Like a phone call. Yeah. See, you don't say them differently either. Mm -hmm. So those are different vowels historically. So when uh, we had everybody come on over in the 17 and 1800s, the majority of migration to the New World, most English varieties um, had a lot of differentiation in those low back vowels, which is what those two vowels normally are the cot and caught vowels. Um, But over time, especially in the West, they have merged because they don't have a very high, what we would call in linguistics, functional load, which means they don't really tell apart many words. So yeah, collar and collar, but those are rarely said in a context where you wouldn't disambiguate them, right? Because you talk about your dog's collar, but uh, but you don't talk about calling your dog. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, maybe you do in that sense, but on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other words that would be merged would be cotton caught or Don the name versus Dawn the other name, right? Don and Dawn. Okay, I do, I do have right? something to say on that one. So my sister, her father-in-law is Don, D-O-N, and her sister-in-law uh, his daughter is Dawn. That and they that's how they pronounce it. We just I say Dawn and Dawn, but when I'm around them and they're from the Midwest, they very much distinguish those two. And I'm like, it's Dawn and Dawn. What are we talking about? Like it's exactly. the same thing. Or that's Dawn. exactly yeah. that's the low back vowel merger. So they actually are saying them historically accurately. Um, which doesn't mean it's better because there are a lot of things that that used to happen in English that don't happen anymore. It's just a shift in the way that people pronounce certain vowels because they didn't seem to carry a lot of disambiguating loads. And when the early migratory history of the West happened, there were there was a lot more dialect mixture in the West than there had been along the East Coast. So we had people from all over coming together with a lot of different back, low back vowel systems. A lot of times when children grow up with that kind of input, they end up leveling or getting rid of those distinctions, which is probably what happened in the West. So people that have that low back vowel merger are most typically Westerners. So when you two exhibited it, um, it gave me a clue as to where you were from. Now, interesting. Now, based off of your assessment, do you believe that for both of us, English is our first language? All right. I haven't taught you all that much. I would say that yes, for Christine, for sure. And uh, I'd have to hear Chris talk a little bit more, but to see if there there are any substrate influences I could pick up. I've oh, never really? heard of like- anybody say that Chris hasn't talked enough. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, once upon a time, <laughs> I was up in this little village, you know, this little country, way out and off the grid. <laughs> I came on a rowboat all the way over here, paddled with one oar, <laughs> up the hill, <laughs> upstream, all the way here. All right, that's good input. With you know, there's nothing glaring that's a substrate influence that I could pick up on, but that a lot of times there are very subtle cues. So, are you both native English speakers? Yes, we are. Yes. And we are both native to California. There you go. All right, good. See, I thought Chris thought he was getting away with something when he was cheating me out of those caught caught vowels. <laughs> he was just like hyper focused. Well, I, to- like, I think when you read something versus when you actually say something, I think when you do read them something out loud that's been written down, do people typically try to like hyper focus on the pronunciation of the spelling of the word when you read it out loud versus just say it? 
They absolutely do. And this is one of the reasons that a lot of times people get upset over oral speech because it differs from what we see written, but they forget that actually spoken language came long before written language did. Um, and it's only really in the last couple hundred years that we've been hyper-focused on writing and using it as a guide to what we think is correct. But a great example of how actually spelling misled people into adopting an entirely new pronunciation is in the word Arctic, oh. uh, which actually did not have the C, the first C, in his, historically, but because it was spelled uh, in the 1800s with a C, it became pronounced that way because people thought that was the correct way to pronounce it. So absolutely, people tend to over-articulate when they're reading. And that's exactly – and you get performative um, when you see things written out, which is what I think, you know, you were kind of acting out the difference. <laughs> it, it's not – Unusual. And when I did my field work for my dissertation in the South, I had pin and pen, which is obvi obviously a shibboleth of Southern speech. And I would have people read out word pairs and pin pen was one of them. And to see these Southerners, you know, uh, so many of them, my friends trying to articulate that difference because they could see it on the page, even though they never pronounced it in their speech was pretty funny. <laughs> That's so interesting. And, you know, I find for myself when I'm speaking that sometimes, so I am a Latina. So my parents, my mom is uh, Mexican, but Mexican American. So she was born in this country. My dad is Caucasian descent. And so I do find though, because my grandparents spoke Spanish, that when I'm around individuals of my same ethnic background, my speech shifts a little bit. And I was like, am mm -hmm. I trying to like be something I'm not. And I get hyper aware of, am I trying to like take on somebody else's accent? But I've started to notice that with myself lately. And I'm like, what is that, that I have that little pattern? Do you notice that with people that when they're around certain groups that sometimes they adopt their language nuances, even if it's just situational? Absolutely. And that's actually a pretty well-known phenomenon called speech accommodation. Mm. And there have been a lot of different studies on it. So speech accommodation usually happens not only when you're around people that speak a certain way, but when you have a orientation towards them that's positive. So we don't tend to want to talk like people we don't like. So when you identify with groups, you often start to speak more like those groups. And that can be either groups that you are involved with on a, you know, face-to-face -face contact level, or sometimes even, especially for young people, it can sometimes be, you know, iconic uh, music or iconic speech that they rep they sort of identify with. And they may pick up features of that type of talk because it makes them feel more closely aligned with those speakers. So for you, it's completely natural and, and should be normal that you would actually accommodate to a uh, heritage background that you have. That's and when I go back to the South, I do the same thing. Oh, really? Yeah. That's yes. super interesting. So Chris and I are raising, we raised three boys together. Their ages are 17, 12, and nine. And one of the things that we've noticed is that I'm not going to name which child because we don't want them to feel called out. Really? But okay. um, actually two of them have started to take on these like, yo, what's up? What's up, G? And they like come around and they're like trying to change their, the way that they speak. And we're like, what are you doing? Like, why are you trying to be like that? Okay. We call them like thug life. We're like, all right, thug life. And so we're trying to get them to like break out of that. But is that pretty common for like children and teenagers to try and, you know, experiment with different types of 
speaking, I guess, for lack of better terms? Absolutely. In fact, that's what pushes our language forward. Um, It is the sort of innovativeness and the experimentation that adolescents do that changes what we end up saying over generations. Um, And this is a good thing because we don't want to be old English speakers, right? None of us can even read that anymore. And who wants to recite? Who wants to sound like Beowulf? Or like Um, like, like Shakespeare. Right, exactly. Although I was watching Bridgerton last night and I might say, my lord, (laughs) my liege, (laughs) sir. Gosh. Can you bring me a spot of tea? (laughs) We find a lot of Americans tend to sort of adopt British accents. And, and, you know, that we do tend to laugh about when people hear that. They sort of joke about it because it sounds a little haughty and pretentious. Uh, But that's because of the long historical associations between the two countries, right? Uh, For many, many years after the American Revolution, British speech was still considered what is high pretension speech and sort of eloquent speech and correct speech. So Americans were considered to have sort of bastardized uh, British English, even though many British travelers to the America, to America said things about how uniform American speech was at the time. It was a lot more uniform than British dialects, but new forms of, of Americanisms were not treated well. So a lot of times we adopt British accents because it, it we like that feeling of haughtiness and pretension that it brings. It kind of has that posh sense that we like. Um, so it would not be surprising that your kids go the opposite direction, right? <laughs> a lot of times they don't want to sound eloquent and haughty. They want to sound cool and hip. That's right. Now, where, that's at what true. point, Valerie, did uh, did America switch out from that English sound? When did that happen? Well, you know, there's uh, some interesting research on how long it takes to acquire new dialects from from sort of feeder dialects. And it happens in uh, remarkably few generations because children get born into dialect mixtures when a lot of different uh, dialects are come together. So in America, though, along the eastern seaboard, the early colonies had very similar speech. So a lot of people came from the same area. So if you were Southern British and you came over, you tended to land in many of the same places. A lot of the seaboard colonies, for example, um, in Virginia and and those areas in Charleston, those were settled by Southern British speakers, which is why, for example, they have Arliss speech there, because that's actually a Southern British trait. But if you were from Northern Britain or Scotch-Irish, you tended towards different areas um, like Western New England versus Eastern New England, or you landed in the Midwest, uh, Pennsylvania, New York, those kinds of areas. So you tended to bring in similar accent features. And so that's why some of our differences in Northern and Southern speech, for example, got preserved, even though we homogenized a lot of other aspects of our speech. Um, And that started happening probably around the 1800s is really when we could start showing that the next generation of speakers, the children born in those areas, no longer sounded exactly like their parents. They had leveled a lot of the dialect features that they didn't find as American, but they retain certain things like Arliss speech in eastern New England, um, Charleston, Virginia, and areas like that. So one of the questions that I have is around an area of our country where I feel like they have really distinctive speech and accents, and that's the Boston area. I feel like it's so unique how did that come about? You know, like when people say like pock the car and things like that. It just doesn't right. seem British. And I'm like, where did they go? How did that happen? Right. 
Well, that is actually this exact phenomenon I'm talking about. Um, Eastern New England, which is where Boston is, was settled primarily by Southern British input. And in the late 1700s, early 1800s in Britain, there was actually a a change in some of the ways that people spoke. So uh, early British, Southern British English would have had park, where it would have been an R, um, and not Pac. But over time, in that 50 years or so, Southern British speakers actually started to drop the R. It became weakened, is what we call it in linguistics, where Northern British speakers did not. And the interesting thing about Boston is it's a a seaport, and a lot of, of British ships came into Boston, as we know from our fabulous Tea Party So they had a lot of continued contact, and a lot of the wealthy Bostonians maintained strong ties back to Britain and either traveled there often or maintained ties with contemporary British peers and colleagues, which were mainly from London, which was Southern British. Um, And that was the posh accent at the time in Britain as well. So they tended to emulate those norms where in British English in the South, things were changing in, in the early 1800s, where you started saying vowels like um, aunt as aunt. That's actually a, a novel Britishism, because in the 1700s, all British speakers said more like aunt, and then they shifted towards the ah from ah pronunciation. So you have things like gloss and both and aunt. And that was actually a novel change. And so Bostonians wanting to be the height of British fashion uh, adopted that feature. And that became sort of a, a marker of being um, high class in Britain or a member of the Brahmin society there, which were highly valued. So it was from this continued contact with Britain and particularly Southern British speakers and the sort of high level of uh, wealthy uh, sort of imports from Britain that that resided in Boston mm-hmm. that maintained those speech features and they became sort of the upper class and pretentious speech features to say. And so everybody, of course, wanted to say them. So what happened to say the South? Because we all came over the Mayflower at one point. So the, I mean. That's not an accurate <laughs> statement. <laughs> Sitting across from your Latina wife, we all came across on the Mayflower. Wow. I'm talking about like. Wow, Chris. I, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about the original colonies. Hello. Yeah. The okay. original, the OG people. That's were my right. People. Okay. So at what point did the South get their particular dialect? Well, you know, the, there were actually 13 original colonies and they, they came, a lot of them from different areas of Britain. And so those established pri- sort of the primary um, s- dialect areas of, of the colonies. And of course, Charleston was one of those early areas settled um, and uh, Jamestown, Virginia, of course. So those were the roots of the Southern dialects. But the South, in addition to having a Scotch-Irish and Southern influence, also had a, a lot of influence from African languages through the slave trade. And so there has actually been a lot written on how much interaction between African varieties that were brought over by the slaves and Southern varieties might have in common. Um, Because if you think a lot about it, a lot of children, which is when norms, new norms get established, would be raised by um, sort of nannies, slave nannies that had children and they would play with children that had African variety influence as well. And they had a lot of contact with people that spoke originally African languages. So there was probably a lot of back and forth between those dialect varieties that also fed into Southern varieties of today. 
Um, but again, you know, a lot of Southern features are actually Southern British features. They just changed in slightly different ways than Boston speech features did over time. But a lot of the input was similar. So, for example, in old Southern speakers, you'll find our listeners just like you find in British English and just like you find in Bostonian English, which is why Scarlett O'Hara said, I never and not I never. <laughs> so a lot of them were similar influences, actually, that we find in Boston. This is so fascinating. And I love talking about accents. But there's another area of your expertise that I would love to pick your brain around as I was doing a little bit of research on you and some of the things that you write about. And I saw something about your research related to verbal tics and like filler words and things like that. And I was wondering if we can have a conversation about cuss words and people <laughs> using them as filler for thoughts and what research you may have done around that or what expertise you have around where they came from, why that people think that they're bad, all of the things around profanity. Sure. Well, you know, profanity, there are a lot of different layers to what the question you asked, all of them very interesting. Um, one is the idea of filler words and why we use them, um, whether or not they're profane or just um and uh, or things like like, and you know, um, all three of those are actually driven by different kinds of pressures, but all of them we tend to consider as, as fillers for other words or fillers when we don't think of something to say, um, which is sometimes accurate and sometimes not so accurate. So filler words as a field is very, very fascinating. And there's some different areas we can unpack there. Profanity is, is a slightly different topic because profane speech, unlike just other fillers or other things we say, comes from um, both historical things that are, are culturally taboo or so socially taboo at different times and moments historically. So the same things today are not taboo that were in the 1800s or probably around 1100. Um, so they have shifted over time, but they also are something we use because they're attention getting, right? So when you're, I don't, and you had said you have three boys, so I'm sure this has happened where they have said something, maybe your 17 year old in particular, they have uttered something maybe inappropriate because it gives them a lot of power. Profanity is, is powerful and it's emotional and it really helps us express things that regular speech doesn't. And one of the reasons it's powerful is because it's noticeable and it's taboo. And, and those are all things that over the course of history have been important to us as speakers. Um, and But filler words are a little different because uh, um and uh, for example, are something that seem to be fairly automatic. So they're not just the same thing as using like or you know, which we have more conscious control over. Um and uh seem to be fairly automatic way we fill our pauses when we're doing heavy cognitive retrieval it's like uh so it's, because, it's a, because it's a uh it's almost like a breath you kind of say it and then you kind of as you're as you're doing your talking you're it comes out like a cycle like you're speaking you're breathing you're saying um to get to the next word then think of the next right. thought it's like a you know right. like, like you're like you're walking you think of each step you just go boom 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 and exactly uh, and uh can come out very easily because it's almost feels like a breath when you say the word um 
Well, I hear that, but one of the things that I wanted to bring up and why I was asking about the profanity, not to put you on the spot, Chris, but I'm going to put you on the spot. (laughs) Thank you. Is So Chris is a truck driver during the day, and he's around individuals that use profane language very frequently. It's like being sailors, you know? Yeah, and I I was raised in an environment where you just don't cuss. Like, it is beyond taboo. You don't do it. And so when Chris and I started to date and... At first, of course, you're in the honeymoon period and you don't hear it very often. And now, as you were mentioning, like our kids trying it out, the 17-year-old really doesn't. The 12-year-old tries it out a little bit more often because he wants, you know, shock and awe. But as Chris and I are talking, it's this consistent conversation of, OMG, why are you cussing right now? It is not necessary. And he's like, it's just, I don't know. It's like, do I want to, you know kick something or do I want to just say the F word and it it gets out the energy that I need and then we move on. Why are you making a big deal? And so we're having this constant dialogue, but I think helping me understand where profanity, like the use of profanity stems from is helpful. Right. Well, and you know, what's interesting about profanity is a lot of times profanity is used because we're in intense emotional experiences and it is a physical manifestation of, of that experience. And what we find is actually uh, we got an uptick in profanity in America after World War II because soldiers needed to have an outlet on the battlefield to, to express that, you know, horrifying emotion that they were experiencing. And so there seemed to be a lot of profanity that was used for that and no one is obviously surprised when you say you know soldiers might might use profanity. My husband was in the army, and I can attest that it is in fact true. <laughs> they do, <laughs> but especially when you are in the height of some emotional experience, um, and then they brought that home. Right, they came back with new words, and so it became more prevalent. But I think the difference between you and and your husband is probably more related to familial expectations and norms. And one of the key things that I try to get across in my teaching and my lectures and my books is that we are not all the same linguistically, but we're very similar in, in how we think about language. We're not very similar in the norms that we use to express it. And then Chris probably just grew up in a household or uh, had an experience in his life where profanity was more useful and more necessary and more the norm. And it was what was rewarded at some level for him, where you had a different experience where it was actually a punishment or a penalty to use it. And so you didn't tend to do it. But when you come together with these different norms, that's when things get excruciating, right? And it's really about learning that we have to accept each other and how we speak, because there is no such thing as right or wrong. There's simply a compromise between what's comfortable and what's not. And and it doesn't mean that Chris overuses profanity or you underuse it. It means that you all have to have some sort of happy medium that you can agree on that makes both of you comfortable. But his is probably just based on a different norm than you had in your background. That really helps me understand it better. And thank you for that little truth nugget that it's not about right or wrong. It's based off of different experiences. Because as you were talking, I was reflecting on my upbringing and it was – I grew up in a household of girls. So we there's myself plus three sisters. And one of the things that my mother uh, – and I love her dearly and I, I credit her a lot for this – is that she – really ingrained in us the importance of being articulate. And there was a lot of verbal correction in our household regarding tone, the way that words were spoken. And so from a young age, we were groomed to be 
polite and respectful and to try and communicate our our feelings and our thoughts in a way that was socially acceptable. I don't know if that's because we came, we were living in a predominantly white community and we were one of the few families that were biracial, but I definitely that's carried with me of this need to be have socially acceptable language and definitely based off of my profession, but Chris was cussing aloud in your household? I mean, I know oh, your mom. I know no. you're raised in church and she's one of our top no, listeners. But, so. I'm, but I'm telling you is that uh, in my career path, like if you go, if you go join the Navy or the Army or any of those places like that, you know that uh, or even in uh, a public uh, high school around your friends <laughs> who are who do say whatever, you kind of start to mimic your surroundings. So if you are involved, like Jacob goes to school and I know a lot of the other middle schoolers also like to you know, use profanity. So he kind of joins the clique and he kind of starts talking the way they do, right? Right, but that's not acceptable at home. And so how do we how do we navigate this? Like you were saying, Valerie, around these two different sets of norms because I think they come intersecting when it comes to raising children. Like how do we how do we integrate that and build our own language structure for our family? Right. Well, you know, this is a big question, right? And and one of the reasons I wrote the book that I have coming out is because I got asked these types of questions so often. I would give these public lectures with talking about my specialty, which is vowel movements. And I just want to be clear that was with a V, vowel, like okay. with a V, um, just in case anybody mis- mishears that. And I would give these fabulous talks, and I'm sure they were fascinating, but people would come up to me afterwards and go and say, you know, oh, that was fabulous. But what about this the reason my kid says like all the time? Or why does someone do this all the time? I hate that. It drives me crazy. Or they might ask about their own speech. So I realized there's a lot of, of both insecurity and prescriptivism that we apply towards speech, both our own and others, that gets in people's way, right? It gets in the way of their relationships. It gets in the way of their jobs. It gets in the way of their schooling. And and we don't have a very accurate sense from linguistic science or history about why we do that and what they mean. What we have is prescriptivism as taught in schools, which is about one kind of talking, And sometimes we confuse the type of talking we learn to do in school, the type of writing we learn to do in school, with the type of talking that we learn to navigate our social world. And what you're pointing to is a wonderful example of the difference between what tends to appeal to men and what tends to appeal to girls or or, or girls and boys or men and women, which is different in terms of the social rewards we get for the types of choices we make in our speech. Women tend not to speak in non-standard vernacular norms at the same rate as as men and boys because it's simply not as as rewarding for them and it certainly doesn't give them the social capital that it does for boys and men. What's non-standard? Now, you, what is non-standard vernacular norms so that that would be we understand like cussing for example or saying walk in versus walking or say gonna versus going to um, saying must instead of um, have to, those kinds of things that we tend to think of as informal speech or even non-standard speech. That would be something like ain't or acts um, or didn't do nothing. All of those are, are vernacular forms of speech, which simply means that they're part of spoken language and they don't tend to be part of written language. And, and they're absolutely linguistically rule governed. In fact, a lot of them come from earlier forms of English. And they, at one point, might have even been... Um, considered the appropriate 
use. Uh, for example, multiple negation or double negatives, like I didn't do nothing in an earlier form of English, were completely appropriate. They just became disliked from a social and prescriptivist perspective later on. So those kinds of forms, things that other people tend to think of as being a little bit rebellious or a little bit improper, those tend to appeal to boys more than girls because they get more traction from them. They get friends from them. They get to be cool from them. But Mm -hmm. if girls start using those, they tend to be not considered uh, in those same views. And they get more reward from good speech, posture and um, posh speech and articulate speech, even though there's not really inarticulateness associated with those forms. I mean, there's, that doesn't really mean someone's inarticulate when they use those forms. It simply means they're vernacular. But girls do not get that same traction from those speech features, which is why, Christine, you probably never did them. You were from a, a home of full of girls with a mother who also realized that to get high as a woman in life, you can't be using speech features that pull you down in the eyes of others. You have to, as a woman, fight more than a boy does to have some sort of capital in socially in the world. And language is a really strong form of social capital for girls, but it's a different kind of social capital for boys where it really makes them cool rather than get a good job because yeah, boys, yeah. Get, those jobs, right? boys yeah. get those jobs anyway, but girls don't. Right. When you hear a man that's like super articulate and has more of those, like when I talk with guys that I work with and they speak more like me, which is trying to be like very clear on their thinking and um, I don't know what's the word like, I don't want to say clean. (laughs) That's not the right term, but proper, very proper and professional. Sometimes they can get jabbed at by other guys in the organization, like, really? like, oh, that's, you know, they're snooty or, you know, they're stuck up or cocky or whatever. Brown Whereas you are- have the guys that are like the good old boys and let's talk about golf and all of this. So it's very interesting you bring that up because I never thought about language in that way and the differences between like how women and how men are conditioned. And it is interesting because I did grow up in a house with all girls and I had those strict rules. I was thinking about even last night, we were working with uh, the 12-year-old because he's been you know, very sassy. I perceive it to be sassy. Like when I ask a question, what? Okay. And I'm like, <laughs> you need to check your tone. It's not appropriate. And he's like, what? What did I even say? And, you know, those types of things. And so – I think what you're bringing up is a reflection point for me of, is this something that I really need to, like a hill I need to die on? Or is this something that is actually going to help him fit in? I don't know. This is this is difficult I would stuff. not die on that hill. I would not <laughs> die on that hill. And I think what we find with language is we, we tend to throw ourselves on that hill over and over again. And through the test of time, it has never worked. Uh, most of what you say today in the 1800s, people would have laughed at you or been horrified. So it obviously it went, <laughs> oh, went laugh you, baby. We'll fine laugh at you. for us, right? I mean, it went fine. No one is is horrified by us. I mean, think of one imperfect example, I think, is how we are really ticky about how people say the word often. I don't know if you've ever heard people that say often. No, often. I say often. Do you, you say often or often? You often say often, babe. I say often. Like O-F-T-I-N is how it's like how I – or O-F-F-T-I-N. That would be like my pronunciation often. Right. And mm-hmm. so uh, interestingly, that's considered a non – uh, from a prescriptivist standpoint, which is sort of the antithesis of what linguists study, but from a prescriptive standpoint, that is actually an incorrect or inaccurate um, pronunciation. But historically, it's a more accurate 
pronunciation because even in Queen Elizabeth I, for example, we find that she was one of the earliest to start deleting that T. But but there's evidence that sometimes in her letters she she wrote wrote with the T, sometimes she didn't, which suggests that she actually was right in the middle of this change in how things were pronounced and that sometimes she pronounced the T and sometimes she didn't. Prior to her, prior to that 15th century, off 10 was actually correct. T was was actually in the word. It got deleted in about the 1500s. So you're historically accurate, but but from a contemporary perspective, inaccurate. So it's very arbitrary. What what I try to point out to people is these beliefs we have about what's good and what's bad is completely arbitrary. It is not governed by linguistic science or linguistic rules. It is governed by social rules. And that is all. So socially, um, maybe people prefer one pronunciation over the other. Socially, people might not want to say certain words because they associate, we, we associate them with speakers or with groups that we don't like at that moment, at that cultural moment. But that's really about a prejudicial stand we have, not about historical accuracy. So over time, things work themselves out. And when we spend too much time worrying about the way a language should be, it changes in exactly that way, even faster, because then it makes it more exciting and interesting to people that push language forward, which is young people. So, so I'd say don't die on that hill because <laughs> he will want a job at some point And whatever is appropriate to get that job at that time, he will have access to. Now, this becomes more of a problem for speakers that are born in dialect communities that are disfavored and that are not given tools and resources to be bi-dialectal because no one recognizes that their original dialect was just as linguistically accurate as any other. And um, they tend to be turned off by school norms because they're not invited into it in any way that would make them want to be part of that. And they also just from their skin color or from their ethnic background are often disenfranchised from employment and professional opportunities. So there's no benefit to them to adopt standard language norms, which won't get them the job anyway. For your son, I think that will not be true. And so if he says, damn, here or there, if he says, walk in instead of walking, he will work that out of his speech when he needs to. So really not a problem. Now, the sassy as the mother of teenagers, <laughs> I, I totally get you there. And that needs to go, man. That needs to go. <laughs> thank you. All right. I, yes, I, I, I agree, too. Thank you, Chris, for backing me up on that. Because as you were talking, I was like... Ugh, I can't let that part go. I can't handle the, the sass. sassy is a totally different thing, right? Because that's yeah. about respect, right? That's not about language. And um, I wish I had the secret for that one because uh, I have I have two teenagers and I experience that regularly. <laughs> but it. I don't have the answer for that one. Well, you've talked a, a lot about your expertise, and this has been super fascinating. But let's back up a little bit and find out about more about you as. A professional. So you mentioned that you work at a university and you've been talking a lot about your expertise in language. Tell us a little bit about that professional journey for you. How long have you been in the field? What is it that you do day to day? Sure. Um, well, and you know, that's going to age me, but let's just say I've been in the field over 20 years. So it's been a while. Um, wow. I've been a so professor. 21 years old. Got it. <laughs> exactly. That's right. I was born talking. Uh, we all were, really, at some point. 
<laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, so I could say I've been an expert in language for my entire life, but really as a studied expert, I've been in this field for about 25 years. And I um, was interested, as I said earlier, just because I had language as such a big part of my upbringing. My parents were both French native speakers. They both had very strong accents. My dad was at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. That's what brought us to Memphis because he was a researcher there and ran a, a program. So we were outsiders there and language was such a big part of why we were outsiders because we were so easily identified as being not from the South and not being part of that community because of the way we spoke. And I remember very clearly, I think it was third grade, I was talking to a friend and I thought I spoke English like the rest of my friends, but I said something like, uh, it was huge instead of it was huge. Mm -hmm. And oh my gosh, it was like I took a knife out and stabbed somebody. I mean, Whoa. everybody, all the girls stopped talking, looked at me as if I was an alien with horns. And they're like, what was that? Why do you say it that way? You talk so funny. And it was because my parents are French and they don't pronounce their H's. So they say huge and human. And I was just, it was a sub, it's, we call it a substrate influence. That means when you're a speaker of a, of a language or a dialect and you have some influence from another language underneath, that kind of comes through in cases, in times. And it might even be indirect, but that was a case of a substrate influence that I had where I pronounced the H like my parents. And it really caused such a reaction socially in my life that it was, uh, it was a hard lesson, but also a very interesting one. And from that point on, I thought, damn, I've got to look at how language is changing my life and my, that of my parents and why it's so fascinating and scary and terrifying that it has so much power. And that's why I went to college at Georgetown University and um, started to major in languages and linguistics because I was really interested in the question of language. And there I took a class called Language and Gender, which was all about how language is tied up in who we are as, as sort of a gender identifying. At that time, really, it wasn't... Um, gender identifying the same way it is today, but it was still the same issue. Um, and it just changed my worldview. I just thought, gosh, I had never looked at language this way. I never understood why men and women at that time, which is what we were studying, had very unique speech features that sort of propelled us on different paths and maybe played into the way that people perceived us. And um, that made me want to study that more. And I went on and got a doctorate. And um, I worked overseas in Istanbul in my first job as a visiting professor, which was fascinating. And then I got the job here at University of Nevada in Reno and have been a professor here ever since. And so I teach. And then I also was the director of graduate studies for a while here. And then I um, have been more of a writer lately. So I do more writing for public uh, facing venues. So I write for Grammar Girl. I write for Psychology Today. And um, I have a book coming out with uh, with Penguin Random House. Fantastic. A book coming out. Check you out. You're killing it. That's exciting. <laughs> now, I do it's have, been fun. I do have a very important question that I've been wondering this whole time. As you have experience in lots of different aspects of language. Is there a, f a specific dialect or accent area of the United States that you love to study the most? Oh, uh, well, gosh, there's so many interesting ones. But having been from the South and having really seen 
the changes that have happened in urban areas of the South, even in my lifetime, uh, I've always loved researching Southern speech. And in fact, that was what my dissertation was on in the first half of my career. But as I've moved West, I've become really enthralled with Western dialect features. And in fact, Christine, you have so many fabulous Western dialect features as you've been talking. I just love it. Um, so that's, like, that, that's good. I've, I've made a couple notes for you on, on some of them I found in your speech. So that's really what's been consuming me lately. But I would say just dialects in general fascinate me. I, I love hearing them. I love learning about them. And I, I think there's so much we don't know when we learn language only one way, uh, which is the way that English classes teach it, which is useful, but it's it's not everything. And um, so really the Western speech region has been captivating my fascination lately. Okay. I want to hear these notes that you have about me. What, what is it that you noticed and what is it? Is it I, not good or bad? Because you said it's no, not no, about good or bad, but tell me, this is intriguing. Very, very Western. And it's not surprising that you would have it more than Chris, because as I said, women are um, often most attuned to innovative speech features, but particularly ones that are coming in as new norms rather than ones that are associated with sort of um, power and solidarity like men are attracted to, so more vernacular speech. So women tend to be on the forefront of linguistic changes, so they push language forward. And then by having children, you push their language forward because you're the first model they get. So you actually have several features of the um, what's called the California vowel shift, which are things like pronouncing, you say, uh, bin, which has an I vowel traditionally as bean. Okay. Uh, like, or no, more like Ben, sorry, more like Ben, which is part of that California vowel shift where you're actually lowering your tongue position a little bit in your mouth when you pronounce that vowel, which is one of the features of California uh, speech. The front vowels, which are things like the word bed and the word um, bat, get pronounced with slightly lower backer vowels. So a lot of times a word like T-H-A-T, do you want to say that one for me, Christine? That. Yes, that gets pronounced much backer. So a Westerner would say that, and a, a Southerner would say that. Oh. Um, you have a little bit of that in your speech. Look at that, uh, Southern Christine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have, yes. No, she's got the Western version, not the Southern one. Okay. Uh, you have the cot-cot merger, which I already talked about. But the other thing I noticed is that you have something that's also very sort of Southern California, which is the uh, glottalization of T's at the end of words. So when you say words like that, or it, a lot of times you say that, it, which is a very Southern California feature. Oh, especially it's like, OMG, like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like that kind not of Not a bad one. Now, <laughs> I just want to reiterate, this is not a bad one. And not only women or, or Californians do it, but it, it does have that salience as that feature. And it, it, I have noticed that you say have all those features, which simply says you're a Southern California woman. So what's interesting is I've lived in Southern California for only about six years, but I have noticed that when, okay, when I was in college, I went back east or in the Midwest for one year. And I remember I was in concert choir and we were on tour and they were giving these like awards, funny awards to each other. And I got the like award because I said like so much and they called <laughs> it the Valley Girl Award. And it's funny because I was I grew up in the Central Valley in California, but they were referring to like the clueless um, whatever. Right. Or what is the what's the phrase that they use in there, Chris, in clueless? 
You talk as about, if. As if. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's so funny that you picked up on that because I've noticed that the more that I do live in in San Diego, the longer that I live down here. Oh, I just did the go. Like the San Diego. <laughs> exactly. The front, that's a fronted back vowel, which is also yeah. part of the California vowel shift. There you go. Interesting. That's because where I got it from. I don't know. <laughs> Now, the one thing about Chris is he talks fast. And so I don't know if that's more typical of California, but I just try to keep up with him. Like, what are you saying? You talk so fast, Chris. And Well, I wonder if that's true with like some people from the Midwest who may talk a little slower, have a slower speech. Is that something to do with dialect or just, just the way the person is? Um, you know, there is actually some research on regional differences in um, and how fast on speech rate, but speech rate is a little complex. So it's hard to have a straight answer for that question because speech rate can mean how quick your words are in your speech stream without counting pauses, or it can be your articulation rate, which is everything, including your pauses. Um, and so, for example, Southerners have a slower uh, pronunciation of things like vowels, they tend to be longer, but that doesn't necessarily mean that overall their speech is slower for everybody because they could have fewer pauses between words. Does that make sense? But in the research that has been looked at, I think predominantly we find that Southerners do sometimes have a slower speech rate um, than Northerners. But in the study that I I'm thinking of there was actually some research that said Westerners are faster than either Northerners or Southerners. Very oh. interesting. Well, you point at me. That's right. Yeah, there you no, go. I wasn't pointing. But at these you. these are very limited studies, so it's hard to say that that's true really of a region versus of those particular speaker groups that they studied in that context. So you know that one's a little tricky because there's so many different ways you could count speech rate. Got it. And now I'm super hyper focused on my speech because I'm I'm thinking, oh goodness, am I making any weird comments or like weird accents or anything like that? <laughs> I wouldn't even worry about it. Maybe sound <laughs> fine. Be myself. No. Yes, and you know that's the tr- that's sort of my the message I think that linguists try to share is it, it's funny because a lot of times when people talk to us they start feeling paranoid about their speech, but that's the antithesis of what we're trying to get across, which is that you're doing exactly what nature intended you to do. It's what your brain is wired to do. It's what your mouth is articulatory shaped to do. What we get hung up on are these social ideas of what we're about to do or what we're supposed to do. And and that's just a matter of one cultural moment in time. That's not really what, what the world is about or what your language is about. So you should just say what you want to say because you are not disordered, right? You don't have a speech disorder. You just have uh, certain kind of features that you prefer or disprefer based on your upbringing, your social background, and your regional background. So nothing you say is wrong. It's just governed by different kinds of identity structures that you have been involved with. Hallelujah. And on that yeah. and on that note, Valerie, where can our listeners find out more about you and where should they be on the lookout for your book to pre-order? Yes. Well, that I think the book the book will be called, or at least, you know, right now, because you never know uh, what will change. But right now it's called I Hate When You Say That. And <laughs> well, that's it, funny that Christy says that to you every day. <laughs> I mean, because everybody has said that, right? Or heard that if you're a guy. If you're a husband, you've you've heard that many times. (laughs) I'm not going to get into any of those squabbles here, but but I I have my own views on that one with my husband. But yes, 
Um, we all can identify with that. So that one probably will go be available for pre-order towards the end of the summer. Um, but you can find out all the updates on the book at my website, which is just ValerieFriedland.com, which is F-R-I-D-L-A-N-D, ValerieFriedland.com. You can also find me on Twitter, which is at FriedlandValerie or in, on LinkedIn. I also write a monthly for Psychology Today. So you can just find my blog for Psychology Today, which is Language in the Wild. And I write a lot for Grammar Girl. So you can just go Grammar Girl Valerie Friedland and find some of the articles I've written for her as well. Fantastic. Well, Valerie, we really appreciate you being here today. This has been so informative and super fun. I got so much out of it. And definitely some points to reflect on as it comes to raising teenage boys. So thank you for that. (laughs) But any last words for our listeners about language? Well, really, I think the message is that we have very strong ideas about language, but we hardly ever really know about language. And if you look at the history of most of the things we like or dislike, it's fascinating. And so to dig in a little more to the etymology of language is probably useful for all of us to do. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and best of luck to you. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. Hey there, K2 crew. We love having you as our loyal listeners. To keep up to date with what's happening behind the scenes, check us out on social media. Yeah, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to follow our Facebook page. Yeah, tag us in your favorite fun stories. And guess what? You might just end up on the show. Hey, you know, Valerie was so fun coming on the podcast. And I love what she was saying. I was trying to figure out where I was from, where you were from. I know. It was so funny. I was listening to my friends today on Zoom calls for work. And I have a friend that's from the Maryland area originally. But she sounds very Southern California now. And I was like, I wonder. She she lives here, right? She lives here. But she's lived all over the place. Like she lived in Australia for a time. And then she lived on the East Coast. And now she's lived here for five years. And I was thinking that would be a fun one for Valerie to be able to like analyze her. Well, I think it depends on where you actually are residing in because you do kind of pick up your dialects from where you are currently living. Even if you were born in like, I heard this happens. If you were here, you're born here in America, obviously, right? And you go to live in Australia, you start to tend to sound like you're Australian. I know. I've heard of that happening. Yeah. You pick up the accents of the different places for sure. That would be very interesting. Yeah, well, you know. (laughs) Well, any other last words of wisdom that you want to share with our listeners for this week, Chris? Well, I would like to say, if you please, please leave us some voice feedback on the old voicemail machine uh, over there on our website at chrisandchristineshow.com. And click on the link where it lets you leave a voicemail. Also, check out all of the fantastic changes Chris has made to our website. Follow us on social media. And give us a shout out and you never know, you might just hear yourself on the show. That's right. And we'll be back with you next next week. week.